Welcome to Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar. I'm Lee Bergstein. And I'm Cooper Knowlton. And we are back after uh, a fairly long hiatus. I think this is going to be our first episode back after a fairly, fairly long hiatus. Uh, and super lucky to have with us today Thomas Hanley, who is a partner at Glazer Weil uh, out in California, actually. So um, it's not quite happy hour where he lives, right? Just <laughs> not yet. So we're, we're not going to do not any quite. drinking on this particular episode. Um, but uh, T- Thomas leads a transactional real estate practice advising investors, joint venture partners, lenders, developers. We actually uh, did a deal together fairly recently. So that's how we came in contact. And uh, Thomas has an, has an extraordinary story, and we're excited to, to share it with all of you. So thanks for joining today, Thomas. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's, an, uh, it's uh, great to be here. So if we were drinking, because it's called Two Lawyers <laughs> Walking to a Bar, so I'd be remiss if I didn't at least ask. If we were, uh, if it was 7 o'clock and we were in the studio together, which is how we used to do this show before the pandemic, um, what would you be having? Uh, usually a glass of wine with you. Yeah. Okay. Maybe and, a beer. Maybe both? Wine and maybe, beer? Maybe uh, beer or wine. I typically don't mix the two. <sighs> All right. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Um, generally, we, we like to kind of trace the, the paths uh, of, sure. uh, of the, the career paths of the attorneys that we chat with. Um, we usually like to go chronologically, so maybe maybe you could just start off by telling us a little bit about uh, where you grew up, where you're from, um, and maybe maybe your your path to law school. Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, no, I'm a LA uh, native, born and raised. Uh, actually, amazingly, uh, third generation, and dating back to the 18 late 1860s when my mother's uh, uh, grandfather. Uh, uh, left Mississippi to come west. At that time, they lost the Civil War. They lost everything, and they headed to uh, to Southern California. So rare commodity out here, I have to say. Third generation, very rare. Yeah. Where, where, where in LA? Where in LA? Did you uh, west LA. Actually, interestingly enough, within uh, steps of where my office is. My office is Century City, and I grew up literally. 500 feet on the other side of Century City. Gotcha. And yeah. did you have uh, attorneys in your family or, or how did you how did you end up as a going to law yeah, school? It was uh, it was something I was always interested in. There were no attorneys in the well, not true. My my I did have an uncle by marriage who was the um, the district attorney of Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, but but. Uh, other than that, there weren't really attorneys in the family, mostly business people. But it was something I was interested in from early on, and uh, so so got into it um, after after college. You know, when I was finishing up, well, back in college, I was um, the, I had started a uh, pre-law society, and then it was a pretty logical thing for me to move on, of course, you know, to law school. And and where did you go to? Where did you go to undergrad? Uh, Loyola Marymount. Gotcha. And and you said while you were at Loyola, while you were at Loyola, you started a pre-law society. Yeah, myself and another guy started this pre-law society, and it turned it into a fairly large group. We had several hundred uh, people in it by the time I left. Uh, I, I graduated. 
and what was what was the what was the jet like what is what did the pre-law society do uh it was uh it was you know picking up on law related topics and you know interesting subjects i remember at one point we had uh, a speaker come in and had a huge crowd for uh, a guy who was giving an alternative version of the uh, Robert Kennedy assassination, which, of course, as you know, took place here in Los Angeles. And uh, and so it was always, you know, something that we thought we could get a crowd, you know, associated with. And it was quite successful. I know at a certain point from our from our conversation before that you left school at a certain point and came back. So could you talk I a did. little bit about that? Yeah, 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 I did. I did. Um so, so uh, I'm uh, I'm either ADD or ADHD. Uh, didn't know it at the time. Nobody tested for it at the time period, and I had difficulty with the focus issue. And in college, um, frankly, I was not paying attention, and eventually, I I uh, flunked out of uh, Loyola Marymount. Took a year off. Started a business with a friend. Uh, that wasn't overly successful, but it kind of gave me the impetus at that point of, hey, you got to get this together and figure out how to deal with this. And so I went back from a very low average to the highest you know, for my remaining two years. I went back and had the highest average in the department uh, for those two years. So I, I kicked into overdrive. Did, did, you, uh, did you start the pre-law society before you left or after you came back? After I came back. After I came back, I got real about life, you know, frankly. And it's interesting because my son went on exactly the same journey. And he, he, uh, 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 he was diagnosed formally with ADD. He, in turn, uh, flunked out of high school, took a GED to uh, uh, equivalency exam, and then eventually uh, went back some years later to UCLA, got into UCLA, and graduated summa cum laude. It was exactly the same path. Were there were there specific strategies or, or tools that that you you had to learn or teach yourself that I'm sure many of which you, you probably still use today? Yeah, 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 yeah. One of one of them is taking notes. I take uh, I'm a ma- big note taker, and taking notes helps uh, focus me on on uh, on the task at hand. So I take a lot of notes. And I, I uh, have, I'm very organized, and I, um, when I'm note taking, it's a very organized process of of it. So when I when I've got when I've done with taking notes, I've got a, a you know pretty complete um, uh, document to look at. I don't have to redecipher it at that point. So were, that was my that was my crib. You know, my, that were I was you uh, were you very organized kind of growing up, or did you have to teach yourself that skill to to uh, become successful and to do well in school, and I had to teach myself. Really, I mean, my my parents, my family, very organized, but you know, I wasn't particularly. Again, I was kind of st- scattered, ADD kid, you know, and and uh, it was something that I really just had to teach myself and force on myself. You know, thereafter, I'm not going to tell my wife that I can teach myself organization. So <laughs> we'll just keep that part a secret from her. Uh, indeed, probably smart. <laughs> Did you did you go to law school once you came back to Loyola? 
um, you finished your last two years, did you go straight through to law school or did you take uh, it? Good question. No, I did not. I, I, I took a year off by my, right after my graduation from college, I got married and really needed a job, you know, during that time period. Um, and so I started working at uh, floor engineering, uh, which is a big, you know, major construction design engineering firm, uh, construction. And, and uh, really, that I did that for a year. That pushed me, you know, into law school. At that point, I decided this really wasn't for me, and I was not following my dream. So I went off to law school. At that point, I started doing both in the beginning. I tried to work in the beginning, and and uh, go to law school, and that just didn't work. Yeah, I, I found myself behind, you know, instantaneously. You're obviously in real estate now. Did did that experience at least kind of? show you that you were interested in that area of the law or did not interest- really okay not really i uh, to be honest about it by the time i hit law school my interests uh were constitutional law and, I, and one of the things when i was on the law review i put together a conference on constitutional law and subsequently published a book on it uh, with the conference papers and uh it was kind of a who's who of constitutional law but uh with larry tribe and um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg were among the, you know, the speakers at our, at our event, and we had 65 speakers actually at the event. And anyway, long story short, is my focus during law school was constitutional law, so which of course left me completely unprepared for practice of law when I started preparing, because I had spent all my time with law review related stuff during the summers, and so I was not doing any slum, summer clerkships. So, and when I came out, I started into uh, immediately into litigation and weirdly and, and probably malpractice on the part of the senior partners, but you know, they pushed me off within two weeks of, of being admitted to practice. I was off representing clients in federal court by myself, you know, and again, just remember, I'm, I'm you know, Mr. Constitutional Law Scholar. Uh, with no practical experience whatsoever, but uh, uh, it, it was it was uh, baptism by fire for me. How did you How did you go about finding that first job? What was that first job at a law school? Oh, first job was at a, a a downtown Los Angeles law firm called Thorpe Sullivan Workman and Thorpe, and uh, firm doesn't exist uh, anymore. But it was a smaller, you know, maybe when I say smaller, it was about at the time about thirty lawyer law firm and uh, interviewed with them, uh, got the offer and went straight into working with them. I worked with them. Uh, as I say, I started doing litigation uh, and I had, I really didn't like it. To be candid about it, I'd rather sell shoes than be a litigator. And maybe that had to do with the, uh, you know, the anxiety that was induced by being in federal court every week on a very active case with no idea what I'm doing, you know, in, in the case. And what, what types of matters were you working on? What types oh, of litigation? Gosh. Well, that, that was, that was representing a lender, uh, on a, on a loan that, um, that supposedly had been released from the, uh, there was, had been a deed of trust on a piece of property. Anyway, I don't want to go into the particulars of it, but there was fraud involved in the release of the deed of trust. Anyway, long story short is I, 
I was able to successfully wade my way through. The plaintiff at the end of it did ask me to to uh, represent him, uh, and I decided not to because he was frankly kind of a scumbag. So, but long, but again, long story short, that was the impetus for transactional. At that did point. you did you think when you were in law school was there was there ever a thought in your mind that you would be a transactional attorney? You said that you were you were kind of focused on constitutional law and sounded like you you probably thought you were going to be a litigator, right? No, I, I I really didn't. I didn't really think I'd be a litigator. I honestly didn't think you know, think too much about it. To be candid about it, um, you know, I just figured I'll, I'll slot in where they need me. You know, coming out. That's when, I, as I say, I started in litigation. Really didn't like it. Um, and then, you know, I got the opportunity to start over on the or to work my way into the transactional side. And I love the transactional side primarily because. Um, people were positive in it. It wasn't, you know, with the litigation side, you're typically banging on each other. You know, there's there's a lot of, you know, of, uh, of grief that goes on in, in uh, litigation. And frankly, a lot of things that don't interest me, such as, you know, depositions and interrogatories and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, in the transactional side, you know, they were interesting, you know, negotiation, uh, you put a deal together, you document it, you negotiate it, document it, and you close it. And then you move on to the next thing. And at the end of, the, of that deal, by the way, you've typically got happy people. You know? <laughs> Unlike in litigation, where even your client is probably unhappy at yeah, the end of that, particularly when they get your bill. Yeah. And even, even sometimes when you get them the best possible result, they're still, they're still very unhappy. It, and it's cost them a lot of time, effort, psychic energy to get there. Sure. Exactly. So how did you, knowing, knowing that you wanted to, you were, while you were litigating, knowing that you wanted to a- actually be a transactional attorney, how did you go about kind of making that transition and, and, and putting the wheels in motion? To- oh, it, was, it, was, it was available to me. It was easily available to me. And so, so I started the partner that I, because we were kind of siloed within this firm and the partner that I was working with mostly was the one who would give me the litigation matter, but in fact, he had a lot of transactional business. And so I asked to be focused on the transactional side, and I did. Uh, and then I was at that firm for like four years and was recruited by Jones Day at that point and flipped over to, to, join, uh, to Jones Day and join their real estate department. What was, what was that recruitment like when you say recruited? What, what happened? Oh, you know, it was a headhunter. You know, somebody somebody found me and uh, convinced me that I should be talking to Jones Day. And I was pretty excited about uh, Jones Day, major firm, uh, great practice. Uh, they had a huge real estate department. By the, uh, I was probably number 15 or something like that in the real estate department overall for the firm. Uh, oh, wow. And by the by, the time I left, I was probably there was probably a hundred real estate real estate attorneys alone. In, uh, did you help? Here. Did you help grow the real estate practice while you were there? Because it I sounds like Los An- yeah, in Los Angeles. Although to be to be candid about it, um, we had quite a bit of business that was uh, systemic to the firm, yeah, and. Uh, and so a lot of our business, we did have local business, 
we, but we had a lot of business that was coming in from other offices and from large, you know, uh, um, corporate clients. So I think this, this, this might segue into what we talk about next, but I wanted to ask you, because it sounds like both in college and law school, you were really good about at, at bringing people together and, 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 uh, you know, creating events, creating spaces for people to collaborate. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty true. And yes, uh, to answer your question more directly from earlier. Yeah. I was involved in, uh, I was the, um, one of the recruiters for the firm and helped build the department in Los Angeles. Uh, yes, in, in fact, uh, you know, I would say that's, you know, it's been one of the things that I've been fairly good at is kind of bringing, bringing people and groups together, you know. Is that something that you've kind of actively sought out throughout your legal career ways to kind of use that, that skill set, which obviously was kind of inherent in, in you from, from a pretty early age? It kind of found me more than me trying to find it. Uh, so, you know, it, in, in, in the firms that I've been with over the years, I've always had, you know, involvement in uh, either, you know, running or, you know, in helping administer the department, you know, the real estate department, um, and, you know, doing recruiting in particular for the firms, the various firms. Thomas, was at any point when you were kind of a junior associate at these firms, did... Um did you, did the ADD issues or the focus issues ever come into play? Or did you feel like you had, you, at that point, you had sort of worked out the strategies for how you, how you sort of managed it? Or was it, was it a continuing thing that you had to you, you struggle with? It's still an issue. It's always an issue. You know, you need to, to, uh, uh, one of the things I need to do is to make sure that I'm kind of, you know, following my, my uh, protocol, you know, in terms of how I do things, you know, for example, uh, on screen is much more difficult for me to deal with, and I'm not very good on screen. I can't, I can't read documents on screen. I get into the doom scrolling, you know, that they talk about, like on, on your iPhone, you know, scrolling through the documents, not really seeing the sentence. And so, the better approach for me, unfortunately, because you know, I kill a lot of trees, but I, I print things out and use a uh, use a ruler with it and use my pen and my, you know, my, my uh, Sharpies and, you know, that sort of thing. And that keeps me focused, you know, as I'm going. Uh, otherwise, uh, I can easily get substance on screen, but, uh, but uh, not, I can't review for, um, for any uh, uh, consistency in the document, for example. I feel like killing a lot of trees is the second job of most lawyers anyway, yeah. ADD or not. Yeah. So you're just joining the, you're joining the herd on that front. I know exactly, unfortunately. <laughs> so, you know, it's hard not to see in your bio that in the, in the mid nineties, you took a leave of absence in the practice of law uh, and served as a peace negotiator for the conflict in Bosnia. So yeah, yeah, that was a, a unbelievably wild experience that whole thing serendipity at its finest so to call that a detour i think would be t to not do it ser service Correct. adequate service so tell you know, tell us yeah. uh, a little bit about sure. how that happened what, sure. what what happened sure at the time uh this occurred and this would have been uh, 94 this all kind of started in 94 um in the summer of 94 
um, I was uh, uh, head of the real estate department for the Los Angeles office of Whitman Breed Avin and Morgan, a big, uh, big New York based firm offices all around the world. Is, is that where you went after after Jones Day or were there were there intermediate steps? No, there were there were there were an intermediate step or two, but you know, I was with this firm for, for quite a while. They I'd been recruited again to come over and to to start and run the real estate department. And I started that I think it was nineteen ninety at the beginning of a real estate recession. But the good news is I was able to uh, bring enough clients in, and you know, and figure out how to how to facilitate getting real estate clients in. And we were actually growing in in the the early to mid '90s in the department, and um, it was very successful, which was uh, which was anomalous in Los Angeles at the time. Most departments were shrinking, um, so so uh, it was. Uh, I was quite busy with you know various matters and running a department. And during that time period, I had a client uh, who lived in Montecito, a big client. And he had invited me and my then girlfriend up to his house in Montecito. And I met a Serbian born doctor while I was there. Didn't think too much about it at the time, but some months later he calls me and he is um, former schoolmates with Radovan Karadic, who was the leader of the Bosnian Serbs. And he starts calling me, he calls me and starts talking about Bosnia and peace and, you know, this, that, and the other. It's like, you know, what the hell? Um, you know, what is this about? What's your name again? And, you know, how did we meet? And, yeah, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, shortly thereafter, I, of course, remembered, because he had an unusual, you know, Serbian name, Borko Djordjevic. And, and, uh, I remembered, of course, and and then found out very quickly that this was actually for real. He had been contacted by the Bosnian Serbs to see if he, as an American, uh, you know, American of Serbian birth, could help uh, foster a peace process by bringing in State Department into the equation. And he contacted me to help facilitate that because I was introduced to him as quote a prominent LA lawyer close quote and and he figured well prominent LA lawyer okay you know you'll you'll be able to do something and indeed I could do something once I found out a it was for real and b that they put me on the telephone with Radovan Karadic I, I found out that this was something that was actually you know on the table and from there I contacted um one of my friends at O'Melveny and Myers, and the Secretary of, the, of State at the time was Warren Christopher, who had been a partner at O'Melveny. Uh, and and uh, I was able to get in touch with him, and I was trying to just hand it off to State Department. And State Department, unfortunately, wasn't interested. Uh, Christopher was not interested in following up on it, which was pretty interesting. So, so I mean, I, we, we spoke prior to this and, and we don't want right. to get into too much too much detail on the actual nuts and bolts of the negotiations because uh, our time here is limited and I think right. we'll save that for for part B but um, definitely definitely curious to know more about kind of the process of once you once you got involved in this uh, what you know did you have to 
disclose this to your firm and and yeah. what was, what yeah. was that process yeah. like and 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 how much sure. was this a full departure from your legal career or were you doing oh this? Oh my god! Inside? Well, I'll go uh, again. I won't you know try to extend out the the uh, the story, but I, I have a million yeah. questions and I we're, we're going right. to have to set up a set up a part B for this because I I want I want the whole story. But yeah, it, it, it's fascinating. It. It's frankly fascinating. So so. So at the, at the point at which Warren Christopher, Secretary of State, is, no, is not interested in talking to the protagonist of the hottest war in the world, all that didn't make any sense to me. Did, did, and, did you speak to him directly? Did you have a conversation with him or no? No, indirectly, indirectly, through the partner at, uh, at O'Melveny. And, and, uh, but it just didn't make any sense to me, and I couldn't understand the rationale. But later, I, I, I think I figured out what the rationale was. You know, for not talking to me at that time. But the, the, the point of it is, is that's literally sitting in my inbox is the hottest war in the world. And so, uh, so I sat on my desk and I'm thinking, okay, what do I do? What do I do? And uh, I thought, ah, I'll call Jimmy Carter. And through, again, it took a, took a bit to ultimately get through to Carter, but eventually I you just had- me- You just messaged him on Facebook? <laughs> it was well. It started with a phone call to Carter Center in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, which, by the way, is called State De- State Department South. You know, they have so many people from State Department working at Carter Center, but uh, and Carter Center is involved in you know virtually every conflict around the world, trying to bring peace, and and so. You know, it was a very logical thing to do. So I call Carter Center. Of course, I don't get through. You know, this some crazy lawyer. They tell me to send a fax, and I contacted Karadich, had him write handwrite a letter of invitation on his stationery uh, to Jimmy Carter, saying, "Hey, you know, we really want peace. You know, talk to Mr. Hanley about it, and uh, you know, we, let's let's have you come to Bosnia." And so uh, I I. Fax that off with my cover letter to uh, to Carter, and the next day Carter calls me, and it coincidentally, um, and by the and by the way, he then invites me down to his house in Plains, Georgia, you know, to talk about this. So coincidentally, that day, the chairman of of uh, Whitman Breed Abbott was uh, in the Los Angeles office, so I pulled him into my office and said, you know, look, here's what's going on, you know, and, and uh, you know, just want to let you know about this. And, you know, I'm talking to Carter and, and his eyes got big and he said, hey, you know, do whatever you need to do. If you need a leave of absence, great. You know, we'll take care of you on this. This is fantastic. Make sure they spell the firm name right. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, uh, again, very long story, but uh, uh, I met down with Carter in at his house in Plains, um, Secret Service everywhere, you know, the, the, the whole thing, and went through uh, a plan that I developed to incentivize Carter to come to Bosnia and to work on peace and to let him know that the Serbian uh, Serbs were actually serious about peace. And so I came up with a five-point plan uh, of various things that the Serbs would do if Carter uh, were to agree to go to Bosnia, and I uh, worked. And from that point, um, Carter and I uh, went into his kitchen, and he picks up the wall phone, and 
and uh, we contacted Bill Clinton, President of the United States. Uh, and so, you know, and this is kind of this is pretty surreal for me. First off, I'm sitting on a in a in a kitchen of the former president on the Naga Hide, you know, little little round table kitchen table area, you know, for mica topped, you know, the whole thing. And uh, we're I've got the former president of the United States and the president of the United States on a phone call. So so uh, that was pretty wild. But uh, bottom line is, is that Clinton agreed, you know, that Carter could go to Bosnia. And from that point, uh, Carter and I called uh, Radovan Karadic and worked on the particulars on this plan that I had come up with. And, uh, and basically, Carter said, look, I'll, I'll do this provided you implement. Um, and, and from that point, uh, I worked on the implementation process. And from that moment onward, I really kind of became ground zero in the whole thing because everything was flowing through me. Uh, there was no direct contacts with, with Karadich uh, on the part of, of uh, Carter or his group. And, and so it, that would go in through me. I would work with Borko, the, the plastic surgeon that I had met, uh, Serbian-born plastic surgeon. And uh, we would work with Karadich and we would get things implemented. And so anyway, by the end of the week, we got the five-point plan implemented, which included release of prisoners, reopening of Sarajevo Airport, and uh, a few other items. And we got that taken care of. And then also I'd gotten phone calls about uh, from Carter's people about, and they, they in turn had been in contact with State Department at this point, and State Department had put in a request to them to see if they could get me to help, uh, you know, release some convoys. And we got those released. We were able to get those released. So, it's, so the point of it is, is everybody saw that this was for real. Um, so uh, so uh, left with, uh, with uh, Borco and we went off to Frankfurt to meet Carter at that point. Anyway, a long, very long involved story, but uh, at the last minute, they would not include us on the flight to Sarajevo. Uh, the State Department would not. We were cut out of the flight. So a very long story involved in what I'm going to tell you next. So I'm going to really cut it down. But basically, Borko and I found our way to, uh, to Belgrade, got, a, got in a car, and we drove to, uh, to through... Uh, through Serbia into Bosnia through the war zone, got shot at. The whole business had wild circumstances, but eventually made it to Palais, the headquarters of the Bosnian Serbs, and that's where I where I was based for the next few days. And then going back and forth into Sarajevo, etc. Um, uh, during this time period, I developed a a ceasefire agreement based on peace treaties I had seen, you know, that I'd had, you know, people pull, associates pull for me. And so I got, got there's, those there's, there's no way to Google peace treaties at that point in time. You, you, you can't just pull templates off right. the internet. But, but we, we, they were able to find, you know, in the library, they were able to get hold of some peace treaties. And I found a commonality among the peace treaties. You know, the ones that worked and the ones didn't. And the ones that worked were general terms. Everybody's agreeing to general principles as opposed to specifics of implementation. So it's easier to get to people to, you know, to sign on the document that says, you know, 
we want peace and you know the hostilities will end on a particular date at a particular time um so 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 again worked with i worked with carter and we utilized my my version of the um, ceasefire uh, agreement i was able to get Karadich to do what i needed him to do which carter was not Carter did not have success with Karadich, and, and the good news was that I, I was able to get through to him, and I was able to get it, uh, get a result. So, was, it, so, was there was there a particular um, skill set or 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 connection that you had with him that, that that made the difference? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think one is uh, one of the one of them was the fact that I had no uh, no dog in the fight. I had none, yeah. and and so from the even Carter, you know, had you know again he's he's he was viewed as having an agenda attached to it. I had no agenda other than to try to get this thing through. And he's the guy that, that a doctor met at a party, exactly. At the end and of the so, day, and so when I was dealing with the night before the meeting with Carter, um, I went through everything with Karadich. And I found resistance with Karadich on various of the items that I needed to get done for the ceasefire. And Karadich, uh, I, I fought with him on this stuff. And I was actually very direct in telling him, uh, telling him why, in essence, that he was never going to get what he was asking for. And here's why. And, and, and Karadich uh, was a bit taken aback by that in the beginning because no, most people didn't talk to him that way. And I was very direct with him and he actually appreciated it and then grew to rely on me and trust me. Uh, so when it sounds like a conversation with a client, it, exactly. it like a, re a really hard conversation with a client. It is exactly, exactly. And it involved, you know, utilizing all my lawyer skills and, you know, explaining, okay, think about this, think about that. You're on the other side of this. Is this something you're going to agree to? Uh, why would one of the issues he wanted was uh, he wanted the ceasefire itself to be delayed before it was implemented. And he wanted it to be delayed until the, the rest of the world gave up its embargo of the um, of former Yugoslavia. And my response to him was, look, you know, it's the same thing as saying you don't want peace because it's never going to happen. You're not trusted. No one trusts you. No, and I had to be very direct with him. Well, he had uh, he respected me for that and he listened. And so when when Carter was unsuccessful with him, uh, basically, uh, I, I, I jumped in at that point and uh, was able to get him to understand and to do what he needed to do under the circumstances. And so we did get the ceasefire put in place at that point. How, um, how long in total were you gone? How long were you? That, that particular trip, because, th you know, this took place over a whole, you know, over really a two-year period, all of it. But uh, that particular point was the, basically the pre-Christmas week of, of uh, December 94. I, I came back... Uh, I think Christmas Eve was when I when I arrived back in Los Angeles. So it was it was approximately a week. It was a long week, I have to tell you. A lot of things happened. <laughs> did you have Did you have family at the time? Did you have, Were you I married? Did. 
Yeah, yeah. I had was uh, was going through uh, a separation, separation, ultimately a divorce, and I had kids as well. So yeah, it was that was all part of it as well. How, how old were your kids when you were getting the, shot at, driving into? It, ranging between uh, eight and three kids, it ranging between eight and uh, and uh, let me think, uh, fourteen. So so yeah, and. And uh, I got to say, a lot of, you know, when, when I was going through, through Bosnia and getting shot at over there, you know, it became very real. I'm no longer just a real estate lawyer from Los Angeles. <laughs> you know? it's, it, it really is like a, a movie where, you know, one day you're mild-mannered oh, yeah. transactional attorney in, in L.A. Yeah. and the next you're, uh, yeah. you're getting shot at. And it's it, I, I, a real estate lawyer and a plastic surgeon. What could be better for that group? It is it is wild, and it does speak to though the 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 strange directions that our our career paths go. I mean, so often we we've Lee and I have probably talked to twenty thirty lawyers in kind of this setting, and it's remarkable how often um, a major inflection point of a career is born out of something random, right? A, a, this, a random coffee, a dinner party you went exactly. to. And, person you meet on the subway i think most people think like oh it's got to be this strategic thing where if i want to work in in this field i have to network and and certainly you have to do some of that sometimes right. but a lot of life and a lot of careers are, are just kind of born out of strange no you go to a party you meet someone you hit it off and next thing you know you you just you, you think you're going down this path and then all of a sudden it's it's over there there's also well, and- there's also perseverance too right because warren christopher tells you not interested. You could have said, "Okay, I'm going to go back to my practice of law," but you kept going and you took some steps other people wouldn't have taken. Maybe, maybe like somewhat obvious practical steps, but steps other people wouldn't have taken. And the next thing you know, you're in, you're in Carter's house. Correct. And more to the point, then you know, at the end of this, uh, I, you know, I, but after I was shot at over there, I had. I, I was coming back with a ceasefire by God. You know, I was coming back with a ceasefire. And when Carter basically said to me that, you know, it wasn't happening, they couldn't get it, get through to Karadich, I wasn't about to let that go at that point, honestly. You know, I was coming back with a ceasefire. And we did. We did. Very successful. Um, the, the fallout out of it was, was very interesting, I have to say. Um, what what was the what was the fallout kind of professionally like when when this when this ends? Uh, huge. You, do, you, huge. do you is it difficult to kind of go back to your your practice? Like how does right. how does that when 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 this is over? Or how does this end? And how do you kind of resume normal yeah. life after something so remarkable as this? My life became anything but normal because ultimately, out of this, I lost my job and. And uh, what had happened is that, if remember, I said in the beginning of this story that the firm was going to, you know, support me through this. Well, what had happened was that a partner in the New York office of the firm had seen me on CNN or, you know, whatever, on on one of the news programs, and you know, and freaked out because his uh, client base were. Uh, European banks primarily owned by Middle Easterners. Well, you know, this war, the war in Bosnia 
was, you know, the Serbs, the Christians, who were Christians on one side, we had Muslims on the other side of the equation. You know, this could ostensibly be viewed as we're representing the guys who are killing Muslims here. And that would not play well for he and his clients. Well, the truth of the matter is what I was there to do was to stop that from occurring. And but it didn't it, it wasn't viewed as such by this particular lawyer, major power in the firm. And he put pressure on the firm of either I had to stop doing what I was doing or leave the firm. And, and, and by this point in time, I became the chief negotiator for, uh, for the Serbian side in dealing with, with uh, Bosnia. And I was already started on putting together peace, you know, permanent peace talks etc. And I'm by, by this point, State Department is now paying attention to me and I'm dealing with them directly. And the firm comes to me and says, look, sorry, buddy, but you know, you got to stop doing what you're doing or you got to leave the firm. And uh, I ended up leaving the firm. I couldn't stop what I was doing. At that point, um, you know, I was ground zero for, for uh, the war in Bosnia effectively and felt I had no choice in the matter. And so were you, were uh, now, you, now I lost my paycheck. I, I, I was going to ask that. I, you know, yeah. Were you engaged by the State Department? Did you, did... I was engaged by no one. Uh, other than, <laughs> you know, the Serbs, this, I could not be paid by the Serbs. There was an embargo on, uh, <coughs> that prevented me from being paid. I actually made application to the IRS to exempt me from that embargo, and that was turned down. Uh, that all happened actually before I went off to Bosnia, but I, I, I felt the State Department was involved in that, in, in the turndown on it. Um, I have to remember, you know, I'm, what I was doing was kind of embarrassing State Department because they had made various attempts to get a ceasefire in, in place up till then through their channels, and that was through something called the Contact Group, which was five ambassadors from five different nations, and that and, and that had all a whole political text attached to it, and it involved making the Serbs the bad guys. Anyway, long story short is they had made no progress at that, and here I came in through the back door, you know, and had walked out of there with the ceasefire. So they weren't overly happy about that. They were dealing with me begrudgingly at that point because I was it. You know, I was the, the key to getting <coughs> through to the Serbs and had come in with something that made sense in terms of the ceasefire. So, so any event, but, uh, you know, meanwhile, no one's paying me. And, and uh, it really... By the t I have to say, by the time all of this was over, um, I was uh, not destitute, but close, you know, because I had to put all my time, effort, not earning a living. I started with, you know, substantial assets. My assets were gone by the end of it, effectively. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I've got to keep my family afloat, too, in the meantime. So, so it was, it, it was tough times. I was... You know, I felt like the universe was punishing me for, you know, for doing something, you know, doing something positive, not the proper approach to that. But, um, but 
nonetheless, it was uh, it was a rough time period for me at all levels. So, so what what did you do? Like, what came next? How did you when when this when yeah. this period of your life ended? Um, what? How did you get back into law and resume your practice? And yeah, well, I, I was I was trying at that point. I was kind of burned out on it. You know, I was I was frankly fairly burned out on it. And you know, I I had bad taste in my mouth. You know, uh, out of the situation that occurred with the law firm. You know, after being promised what I was promised, and then you know the actuality of what occurred. And so I did try to put my hand into other areas. And suffice it to say, everything pushed me back into law. But it was a rough time period to get back into law uh, because the, you know, it was really a real estate depression during that time period. There was a, you know, it was more than a recession. It was really bad. And a lot of my clients were dead and gone, you know, effectively, uh, you know, out of, out of that experience. Or, you know, as I say, gone too. They, you know, off with other, other attorneys. I had disappeared. You know, so really, uh, eventually, and it wasn't until 97, um, I was able to get a position in a law firm as basically a contract associate. Now, remember, I'd gone from running a real estate department or the, the office, real, the uh, department office in Los Angeles for a major international firm, and now I'm coming back as basically a contract associate. But that's what I did. I started in 97 and then, you know, just built my way back, you know, and it took, took a lot of years, it took a lot of years for me to, to make my comeback and had built a new client base during that time period, worked my way into becoming a partner in a law firm. And eventually, you know, uh, uh, before here, I was at Loeb and Loeb and left Loeb to go to Glazer Wild. So it's incredible. Yeah. Because I think if, if this had happened now, uh, you know, if you had, for instance, you know, gone to Ukraine or something like that and helped negotiate a, a piece there with social media and the way things work, you would have come back and been a rock star and law firms yeah. would have been chomping at the bit to bring you in. It, it, it seems so uh, it, it's it's just seems odd to me that, that you would come back and, and, you know, have to kind of work your way back oh. back up. From, from ground zero. I was also, and yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Today it would be a whole different ballgame because of social media. It didn't exist at the time. Uh, and I, you know, I wasn't going out of my way to, you know, to publicize what I was doing over there. Frankly, part of the, 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 the reason I was successful is because I was working, you know, extensively behind the scenes, you know, to yeah. get, to get everything done. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, long story short is that um, it was it was very rough. And today it would be a, you're right. It'd be a whole nother ballgame. So it's so interesting. Like, I, I, you know, it seems to me like like uh, even the modern State Department could glean a lot of lessons from what happened with you. Um, but it really just speaks to the to the impact that personal connections have yes. on everything, right? Yeah. You know, from, from a real estate deal to, to this kind of negotiation. And it's... Well, and, you know, and I learned something in the process. I watched Carter and how Carter was with, uh, with Carradage. And the way Carter approaches these guys, these are, you know, often the people that he's dealing with are, quote, you know, the bad guys. Well, 
part of the reason that State Department and the and the contact group, the other the other four ambassadors were having so much trouble, is that they were treating the Bosnian Serbs as the bad guys. Not that they weren't. They, they there was a lot of bad stuff going on uh, over there that was that was uh, you know directly pointed to the Bosnian Serbs. No question about it. There was a lot of bad stuff that was going on in Bosnia generally. And, and the approach that State Department had taken was, well, you know, if we walk into a room and with Karadits, we're not going to shake his hand, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I saw what with Carter, Carter approached uh, everyone that he dealt with, with, uh, digni- with respect and, and specifically respect for their dignity as a human being. And basically he looked at him and implicitly was saying, uh, look, you maybe have done bad things in the past, but I'm expecting you to do the right thing now under these circumstances. And, and that's how he was successful at getting things done. And this is the way I also had to approach Karadich. <clears throat> I mean, these guys, you know, Karadich is currently in The Hague, uh, convicted of war crimes, etc. These were not nice people, but you had to approach if you wanted to get this thing done, you had to approach them from the level of their humanity and the expectation that they will do the right thing now. And ultimately, they did under the circumstances. We got our ceasefire put in place. Ultimately, a resolution uh, of the war in Bosnia that originally was based on uh, on a, a proposal I made. Um, so Lee, Lee asked you previously how the practice, how your practice kind of impacted your, um, the, the workings during, during this time period. I'm, I'm curious how the workings, how, how your negotiation during, or, or the, the experience of these two years being involved in this uh, impacted your legal practice moving forward. Well, it, it's, you know, I've always approached, listen, in, in, any deal that I'm in, my default setting, it was before, but now more, uh, more. it was kind of implicit before, now more, a little more explicitly, since this Bosnia period, is about finding the win-win. You know, uh, you know to walk out of this with a deal in which everybody's getting a little bit of what they wanted, maybe a lot of what they wanted, but the point of it is it ends up in a win-win scenario. And... And uh, if I had approached the Bosnia situation or Carter had or any of us from the vantage point of, hey, you know, this guy wins and you lose, you know, we wouldn't have had it. We wouldn't have had an outcome. There had to be a balance in the equation. And that is true in negotiating deals, you know, and putting deals together. You look for that, what I call the green line that uh, of, you know, where both sides are winning at some level in, in the uh, transaction. And, it's, and frankly, it's what, my, it's what my clients hire me for now is that I'm very good at putting those deals together and getting them closed where other lawyers often are not able to do so. I can't think of a better pitch when a client is skeptical of your ability to put a deal together. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, and it's good cocktail conversation as well with the with the clients. Totally. 
Um, Lee, I, I think we probably have time for maybe one or two more questions. I want to be respectful of, of your time, Thomas. Yeah, no um, problem. I don't know if you have any final questions that you want to you want to wrap this up with. Um, I get, I, I, the only other question, I mean, I have, I have thousands of questions, and I'll probably ask them of you offline, Thomas. Yeah. And, uh, um, but I guess the main question is, you know, you go through this experience and I guess you, you realize that you have this skill that maybe you didn't know you had, which is you, you can negotiate, you know, you can, you can, I mean, there obviously are parallels to, to real estate deals and to your litigation experience, but, um, you know, you, you realize, okay, I can, I can do this that maybe only a handful of people can do really well in the world where there was there a thought about changing the practice area about um about going into international arbitration well, there was there, there was i mean i had some thoughts about it you know again i needed an immediate paycheck you know so my need to eat you know kind of overwhelmed a lot of those those thoughts because you know it, it, there's a lead time associated with getting into that i was frankly hoping that I would get picked up to work in other uh, other conflicts around the world, and and indeed I was contacted, you know, for virtually up through the the Gulf uh, the Gulf War era, uh, you know, by somebody involved in some conflict around the world. Good example was Flight 103 in in uh, in uh, uh, with with uh, Gaddafi. You know, I was contacted to perhaps get involved to see if I could resolve that. I was in, in, I was contacted to see if maybe I would want to get involved in uh, in uh, the Iraq situation before the Gulf War had actually started. And uh, anyway, it was I was hopeful that I could actually somehow, some way, be involved in continuing peace processes around the world, and somehow, some way, get paid for it at that point, but it just never kind of gel, gelled for me. And in the meantime, I had to get a paying job, you know, frankly. Yeah. So that's the, that's the tension. Exactly. We all face at times. Correct. Correct. Indeed. All right. Well, Lee, are, are we, uh, I know we have, we had a lot more questions that we, that we wanted to ask you, but, um, I think we've run out of time for today. Maybe we can we can hopefully set up a, a round two at some point in the next couple months and I would love to dive more Thank into you. these topics. But this was this was a fascinating conversation well, and a fascinating. I, I have one more question to put a pin in. Sure. It's not a question about uh, your legal career. So, in view of this experience, and I know that you're into uh, into movies as well, typically westerns. But what's the best geopolitical thriller in your mind? What's the <laughs> Oh boy! Other than uh, your life story, what's the what's the best? Yeah, which which we're working on at this point to make a movie of. Um, gosh, you could think on it and let us know. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let, let me think about that. Let me think about that. Uh, we we really appreciate the time. Uh, you know, the uh, you kind of getting yourself to law school is is kind of a remarkable story in its own right. But then what happened afterward? obviously, unlike most of the guests that we've had on this program. So super interesting. Uh, thanks for kind of... Uh, you, know what, you know what's kind of cool is, you know, I really used, utilized my degree, 
you know, for something kind of, uh, you know, meaningful, you know, and not anybody, not everybody can say that, you know, that's, you know, I'll go to my grave having actually accomplished something, you know, that's meaningful on a, on a world level. And, you know, and this is something that, you know, and if you think about it, I'm really an everyman in this story. Um, you know, I'm not anybody special or particular. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and happened to be the right person, you know, because I was able to make that connection. But if, if you actually, if I were to tell you the full story, it's a series of unlikely events all coming together. And, you know, one after another, after another, after another, after another, serendipitous. But, you know, you got to think there's some intelligence involved in that at some level. It was just it was just too many coincidences all the way through um, the story. So the, one of the main takeaways is don't say no to that cocktail party that you don't want right. to go to in the hills. Yeah, exactly. Um, who, Cooper, Lee, who, keep that Last question. Who, who are you casting as uh, as Thomas in the movie? Oh, good, good grief. Um, I was, you know, I was asking now, Lee. I, I want Lee. But, uh, but uh, you know, I, I was thinking that, boy, I'd love to get this to Plan B, which is Brad Pitt's company. Brad Pitt would not be a bad story, a bad, uh, bad me, but he's getting a little old now. But, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but uh, I, I was thinking, uh, you know, there, there's a you know, number of these, you know, these uh, male stars out there. I was thinking Matt Damon. Brian, Damon uh, seems like the the perfect role. Who, who who's that? Matt, Matt Damon. I could I could imagine. Damon would be a great one for him. <laughs> he would be ideal. And one of my actually that's maybe a possibility because one of my one of my acquaintances anyway is the guy who produced the Bourne movies. And so I'm gonna so when the script is finished, we've got a writer working on it now. When the script is finished, I'm gonna have him take a look at it and with Damon in mind. Of course. <coughs> okay. So, so yeah, yeah, it, it, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. You know. Well, we oh, appreciate the time. And excited for meeting you guys. If you need, if you need a, I, I did a little acting back in the day. So if you're thinking, about <laughs> there you go. <laughs> hey, you make a good meeting. You're the right age. <laughs> for me in '94. So, thank you, gentlemen, thank you. That we was really fun. Appreciate your time. This time. Yeah. Take care. For more on all things real estate and the law, subscribe to this and our other podcasts. Follow Bergstein, Flynn, and Knowlton on social media. Subscribe to our newsletter and go to bfklawoffice.com. That's bfklawoffice.com to 